Hello and welcome to the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell Staten. We're coming at you with something a little bit different this month, exploring the biology of the Incredible Hulk. We're splitting this episode into two parts this month because there's just way too much to dig into with this one. So here in part one, we'll explore Bruce Banner and the Hulk through the lens of physiological stress. I sit down with Dr. Michelle Rinsel, a stress physiologist here at UCLA, and we talk about exactly what happens to our bodies when we're stressed and how do early life experiences affect how we process that stress as emotions. And as always, I'm joined once again by my main man, partner in crime, Arian Darby. Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Arian, and I just wanted to deliver a quick disclosure. I am currently an employee of Warner Brothers Entertainment, and any feedback and opinions that I have are solely my own and are not a reflection of the company. So sit back, take a deep breath, and stay calm. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So for this episode, we are going to dive into one of my all-time favorite characters, Bruce Banner and his alter ego, the Incredible Hulk. Now, this has been one of my favorite characters like since I was a kid. I remember watching the TV show from the 1970s with Lou Ferrigno um, you know, playing the titular role of the Hulk. Very little speaking parts, but uh, in my opinion, an Emmy-worthy performance nonetheless. But when we're thinking about this character, Arian, can you give us a little bit of background about, you know, how we got the Incredible Hulk? Who is this person? What is their story? What makes them interesting? Sure. So the Incredible Hulk was introduced to us by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1962. And one of the first things that's interesting about his history is that he wasn't born that way. He wasn't a mutant. He didn't come from another planet. His story actually was rooted in altruism. And so the way we ended up turning Dr. Bruce Banner into the Hulk was actually through an act of heroism. He was on site at a testing ground out in the desert somewhere in the Marvel fictional universe. And they were getting ready to detonate a gamma bomb. And he's a physicist by trade, so he was... Uh, sitting in a lab with his colleagues, getting ready to do some testing with this bomb, when all of a sudden this young teenager in a car was kind of cruising by and accidentally kind of made his way onto the testing grounds. And so Bruce Banner saw it and rushed out to the site uh, to warn the kid and said, hey, you know, like, get out of here. And he was able to flag him down. And as they raced to a ditch to hide for safety, the bomb actually ended up going off and Bruce was exposed fully to like a entirely massive dose of gamma radiation, which triggered his transformation into the Hulk. So instead of getting cancer, he got superpowers. Yes, but one could argue that the superpowers came with some problems. Indeed. So, you know, so when we're, when we're thinking about this transformation of, you know, of Bruce Banner turning into the Hulk, like, you know, 
from like in the Marvel Universe, like when we're reading about him in the comics, like what what is the history of this transformation? Yeah, it's certainly evolved over time. And uh, when the first issue came out and we were uh, initially introduced to the character, you saw that there was this element of night and day playing a factor where Bruce Banner, his time was spent during the day and he was in full control, but he had sort of this paranoia and, and sense of growing fear as the day progressed because he knew that when day transitioned to night, the Hulk was going to emerge. And so you had sort of this biological transformation rooted in the day-night cycle, and it was fairly predictable. But what's happened over time is the storytelling around the Hulk as a character has gotten much more sophisticated. And then we've started to dive into the psychology of both Bruce and the Hulk, as well as stress physiology and, and things of that nature. Yeah, so one of, one of, I think, the most interesting aspects of this character is that I think in large part it was inspired by a real-life scientific event, probably one of the biggest scientific events in human history, certainly modern human history. You know, and that was the Manhattan Project, which culminated in the Trinity Test, which is like the first detonation of a nuclear weapon. You know, this played out between like the you know, 1942 and 1946 you know, and it had like some huge names, like some of the biggest names in science were involved in this particular event, including uh, Robert Oppenheimer. So it's, it's interesting to see how like such an intense scientific event, some might say breakthrough, some might say tragedy, um, you know, led to like not only, you know, the coming of the modern age of war, but also led to this really fascinating character. One of the things that I think is most intriguing about this character is that, I mean, he's just so emotionally driven. And like I think that latent rage, you know, and how it presents as the Hulk, I mean, I, that seems to be just like the core source of of his power. And like that power is, I mean, one could say that it's like unequal in the entirety of the Marvel Universe. Like it, So when we're talking about like how powerful Hulk is, right, this sort of rage monster, you know, being fueled by these like raw, unabashed emotions, like how how powerful are we talking about here? Oh, he's easily one of the most feared, powered people on the planet when you're talking about the Marvel Universe. And there's been tons of instances where characters have encountered the Hulk and come out worse for wear. In fact, one time, the Hulk caused so much damage and destruction in Las Vegas that some of the greatest minds in the Marvel Universe came together into this group called the Illuminati. So it was Black Bolt, Iron Man, Mr. Fantastic, Professor X, and Namor, uh, and also Doctor Strange. And they all collectively came together as a group. One, to solve some of the biggest problems that Earth would ever face in terms of uh, interstellar, intergalactic issues or supervillain issues. But the, one of the first things they really tackled was what to do with the Hulk. And they set him up to go into outer space, make a repair to a spaceship that S.H.I.E.L.D. was having problems with, and essentially trapped him in this vehicle, put up a two-way video conference message to him and said, hey, sorry to break it to you, man, but we don't feel safe here with you on this planet. You can't control yourself we're sending you off planet to another world. That's cold-blooded. It was the most cold-blooded thing to ever happen in the Marvel Universe. 
and they swore up and down, hey, we found a really nice spot for you. It's lush, green, tropical, and you're going to live out the rest of your days in peace. But it turned out to be this war-torn planet where he was in constant battle, and that's a whole nother story. That's Planet Hulk. Planet Hulk. Oh, fact. man. The it's, name of that story. That's like one of my all-time favorite storylines. If you guys are interested, you know, we see a little bit of that in uh, Thor Ragnarok, um, you know, but it just like skims the surface of this story. It's like one of the most epic events in the Marvel universe. I highly, highly recommend it. Planet Hulk. Yeah. And it's incredible. And it all spun out from this deep sense of betrayal from the Marvel universe and its heroes because they simply had no other solution to deal with the Hulk other than to literally ship him off the planet. Yeah. So the, you know, the Hulk story in large part, it's a story of control or lack thereof fear, anger, you know, it's all about emotion and, and a lot about stress. I think, you know, ultimately when we think about the character of the Hulk, it becomes a story of stress. The current stressful situations that he puts himself under that start this transformation from Bruce Banner into the Hulk, but then also the sort of stress of his life, all the events leading up to, you know, the explosion that then turns him into, you know, this character. So, for this episode, we're going to explore stress and we're going to explore this from a physiological perspective and we're going to explore it from a psychological perspective as well, because I think these are two important angles that work together to really shed some light on first what stress is as a process uh, and also like what that means for Bruce Banner and the Hulk as a character. So to start this off. You know, I reached out to you know a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Michelle Rinsel, who is a stress physiologist, and I asked her a little bit about like exactly what stress is biologically. But first, let's hear a little bit about who she is and what she does. My name is Michelle Rinsel, and I am an assistant adjunct professor at UCLA. And I, uh, in addition to teaching quite a number of classes, I study stress. And I study stress, uh, particularly with respect to how it affects behavior and the brain uh, in songbirds as a model system. So why, why songbirds? Um, first and foremost, I'm just really excited by birds and by the diversity of behaviors and, and morphologies that we see uh, mm -hmm. in birds. So I'm really interested in studying them for the sake of basic science, okay. right? Uh, to understand how they cope with all sorts of different challenges in their environments. In addition, songbirds have been used frequently as models for uh, human vocal learning uh, because ah. they possess these really neat neural networks that allow them to learn and initiate uh, vocalizations. Right? And so we can use them in addition to look at the effect of stress, for instance, on um, song production, right? Oh, okay. and, and translate some of that information to studies of human stress and vocalization and other studies of cognition as well. So a big part of Michelle's research is, you know, focused on, you know, the effects of stress on biology and cognition um, and aspects of the brain. So obviously, you know, I think she's the perfect person to sort of give us some insights about exactly what stress is biologically. So let's get her rundown on exactly what stress is from a biological perspective. So we're talking about physiology and stress. In this yeah. case, as it pertains to Bruce Banner, <laughs> a.k.a. the Hulk. Yes. 
our huge giant green rage monster. Yes. We know that for Bruce, his transformation into the Hulk is triggered by stress. But can you give us a broad rundown of exactly what stress is biologically and what tools does our body use to to deal with it? Yeah, so really the stress response is what we're talking about here, right? I, I like to refer to stress as usually kind of the... Some people think it's the response your body mounts. Some people think it's the the thing causing the response, right? So just to get my terminology correct here, mm-hmm. um, I would say the stress would be, you know, whatever's stressing Bruce Banner out. What, okay. what stresses Bruce Banner out? Uh, so, Getting hit? Yeah, I think it's typically, <laughs> you know, people trying to, to beat him up and, like, do other such things. Although sometimes, like, when he, you know, like the death of a loved one, for sure. instance, like things like that. Sure. Okay, yeah. So when we're exposed to any of those kinds of stressors or other stressors, like being stuck on the 405 freeway <laughs> all the time, I have stress response every time. Um, do you hulk out? A little bit. Okay. Just like a, a Just tiny a shade of green. Just a little bit of rage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so what happens is that, that we initiate this, this physiological response, right? This machinery kicks into gear in our bodies, um, which results in the release of these hormones that we've been talking about, primarily cortisol, right, and, and epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. Um, and these responses, right, the kind of flooding of our bloodstream with these hormones is really adaptive in, in its nature, right? This system evolved to help animals escape and cope with and recover from really stressful experiences that they would experience in the wild. Now, is, is this the same as fight or flight? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep, we could, we could say it's fight or flight. We might add recovery onto that as we learn more about what these systems do, mm-hmm. right? How they help an animal or a person to not only get through a stressful experience, but also to recover and be prepared for the next time, right? So if you're an animal um, being chased, say, by a predator, levels of your cortisol and epinephrine go up into your bloodstream and those hormones are actually going to uh, go to a number of different sites and help regulate their function. So they're gonna travel to your brain, right? And increase your alertness, right? And potentially increase your uh, interest in fleeing or fighting, mm-hmm. right? Um, turn right back to Bruce Banner there, yeah. right? Uh, but typically they're also the fighting with him. Typically fighting, he doesn't <laughs> usually run, but he could. Um, they're also gonna go uh, to your heart, right? And help speed up your heart rate, increase your blood pressure so that all of the, the blood is gonna go to your skeletal muscles, like your arms and your legs to really help you run or undergo that kind of you know, aggressive interaction, Okay. right? Um, they're going to help kind of shut down unnecessary stuff that's happening in your body, right? Things like digestion. Mm. Nobody needs to digest their breakfast, right, when they're running away from a predator. Okay. That takes energy, and you want to put your energy where it needs to go. Is it So is this one of the – so I remember when I was in college, yeah. um, I played rugby. Uh-huh. And before – like right before kickoff, I would always throw up. It was, I couldn't help it. I don't know why. Yeah. But is that, is that because of a stress response? Uh, probably, yeah. Okay. Actually, some people get the opposite effect, right? Things happen at the other end of digestion as well when they're stressed uh, out. Yes. And those can be seen, yeah, as like, get rid of it. Don't deal with it right now. Yeah. Right? Luckily, the, the latter didn't happen to me before Are the rugby sure? game. Are you sure? <laughs> I promise. 
Um, yeah. So when we're, when we're talking about stress generally, yeah. um, fear versus anger, right? Can yeah. I guess we can both, we can classify both of those as like general stress responses. Yeah. Now, do they have like the same sort of underpinning mechanisms or is there something distinct about fear versus anger at the hormonal level? At the hormonal level, I think it would probably be a similar mechanisms that are influencing this. Anger would probably just be another byproduct, okay. right, that's involving other neural mechanisms and past experience and personality, okay. et cetera. So right? that would be like the interaction of like hormones with yeah. aspects of psychology. Yeah. So whenever we get to anything about behavior, right, it's not really the hormones that are causing a behavior. They're just basically modifying or altering uh, the probability that different behaviors will occur, right? Oh, okay. So they're not really, when we talk about hormones and behavior, we talk about them as kind of mediators, right? Um, but they're going to interact with previous experience, um, with, you know, what's already there in the brain, right, okay. to determine outcomes. So it gets really complicated really quick. Yeah. But it seems like when we're considering Bruce, I think a lot of times we like to consider Bruce as a pretty mild-mannered dude. Yeah. But if the hormones are just sort of jacking up what's already there, right. like maybe he's, you know, he's just got some anger issues, generally speaking. Right. And, and isn't the saying, I'm always angry? Yeah. Yeah. Right? That is what we so find out in the he's, Avengers. He's got a lot of latent anger and he just needs something to kind of tip him over the edge into that, into that, uh, into the Hulk. Yeah. Right. And maybe those stress hormones help him out with that. Very cool. <laughs> So as you can see, stress, I mean, it's a pretty complex process, right? This uh, combination of sort of hormonal regulation and its interaction with, you know, our neurobiology and how it translates into emotion and then how we express that emotion. I think generally speaking, when we think about behavior, you know, scientifically speaking, you know, when we try to understand exactly what makes behavior, it's this is one of the most complex problems in ecology and evolution because it is so vastly complex. You know, it's really hard to, to understand, you know, what governs an individual making a specific decision, for instance, or what governs you know, an individual having a specific response to a specific stimuli at a specific time. But we really need to sort of understand this process, one, to understand all sorts of questions across biology, including, you know, aspects of evolution and ecology and obviously um, behavior. But we also need, uh, you know, a deeper understanding to really uh, get a grasp on what is going on with this character, Bruce Banner and his alter ego the Hulk. Uh, when we're talking about stress and the fight or flight response, you know, we're really talking about one specific system uh, in our bodies called the limbic system. Right? And this is, you know, the system that is, you know, it's a combination of, you know, of hormones and neurological organs and processes that control basic emotional processing and behavior, motivation, uh, long-term memory, and, and even olfaction. Right? So, you know, one of the things that you know, I think is really interesting about that system is that because it's it's also involved in olfaction, I think, you know, our sense of smell is actually really tightly linked, you know, to, you know, to our memory. So, you know, if you smell like pancakes, you know, all of a sudden, yeah, at least for me, you know, I get 
these memories of, you know, growing up as a kid and, you know, my mom, you know, making pancakes for me and my emotional state at the time, et cetera, et cetera. That's because old faction is, is part of this greater system that is also involved in, you know, in memory and emotion. Uh, but the sort of center of this uh, of this system and this fight or flight response is the amygdala, which is this you know sort of small, I guess about about the shape of an almond, like bit of our brain that's located deep within our temporal lobes, and that is directly associated with aspects of our memory and our decision making, and importantly, our emotional processing. But when we're thinking about the Hulk, like obviously he's the product of more than just you know, his immediate reactions to things, you know, and I think that Bruce and the Hulk are, I would argue, more than any other character shaped in large part by, you know, the early experiences of Bruce, particularly when it comes to his father and early trauma. Uh, and you know, with other characters, I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with like the loss of a loved one, if we think about, you know, Peter Parker losing Uncle Ben, et cetera, et cetera. For Bruce, I mean, I think a lot of it actually has to do with with abuse and like going through this. I mean, obviously, he also lost his mother, but a big part of his story, like, I think, has to do with childhood trauma associated with parental abuse uh, at the hands of his father. So, Aaron, can you give us a little bit more background about this aspect of the character? Yeah, so we definitely see that in Bruce's early childhood, he's suffered at the hands of abuse from his father, both physically and verbally. He was called a disgusting little monster early in childhood, and like Michelle mentioned, a lot of that stuff reappears and manifests itself later in life. And so this idea that there's maybe these unresolved anger issues that he hasn't fully processed. Uh, we see some of that manifest even in the story about the Hulk told with Edward Norton, where he's in the midst of this very disciplined life that he's leading in Brazil, where he's practicing a martial art and he's really harnessing the potential of controlling his body to control his anger and constantly monitoring his heart rate and doing everything in his power to suppress that internal rage that one has to believe has sort of been generated from an earlier childhood trauma. Yeah, so I think in a lot of the movies, you know, we sort of get this cross-section of Bruce's life as an adult, but here and there, you know, we see flashbacks, you know, we get these little bits and pieces of what his childhood was like, especially in the very first Hulk movie, you know, that starred Eric Bana. And from this story, we can tell that, you know, Bruce, he's gone through a lot of things, you know, and I think that those early experiences in large part sort of contribute to how he presents after this accident. Um, because I don't, I'm not sure if this particular presentation would have happened to anybody else in the Marvel Universe if they were exposed to the exact same conditions. You know, because they likely lived very different lives and had a different and have a different relationship with their emotions and with how they process stress. So I asked Michelle a little bit more about how early stress can affect us biologically. Let's hear what she has to say about this. Can childhood experience or childhood stress affect how you, you know, respond to, to stressful events later in life? Absolutely. There's a, a large and growing body of literature looking at the effects of early life trauma, 
stress uh, in a number of different ways, both in animal model systems, um, but also quite a lot of emerging data in humans as well that suggests that early experience is fundamental to shaping how an individual copes with stress over their lifetime. And that can have really long-term implications for things like disease propensity as well later oh, in really? life. Oh, really? Yeah, so um, stress-related diseases can include things like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, et cetera. Oh, dip. Yeah. So Bruce might need to should go go see a, a, a doctor to get himself checked maybe. out. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, oh, man. So, yeah, so in... Some of the foundational work in animal models was looking at um, early life stress in the form of maternal separation, right, uh, in rodents. And, and a lot of that work established that um, that contact that young, say, rat pups have with their mothers um, helps shape their stress response system, right, that system that engages when you are exposed to a stressor. Um, and that system involves not just your adrenal glands, which make these hormones, mm. but it also involves the brain, right? Uh, and so that system basically gets set down particular pathways towards being, you know, a little more chill, able to cope, doesn't kind of activate as easily, mm. right? Um, or towards these sort of hyper-reactive, anxiety-driven sorts of phenotypes uh, that we see uh, in those rodents that say were separated from their mothers. So we see here that the effects of the events of an individual's life certainly shapes their personality. And obviously, I mean, I think this is something that we all know just from, you know, our own experiences and, you know, living our social lives, like getting to know the, you know, the differences and, you know, our friends and family, et cetera, and how that relates to their childhood. But it's interesting to hear exactly how much of a biological, a lasting biological effect our early life has on who we are, not just in terms of our personality, but in terms of our physiology and our interaction with the world around us and the individuals around us, you know, from a basic biological standpoint. And I think this also, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, how this affects our individual lives, you know, it's also possible that it doesn't stop there, you know, so we've talked a lot about, you know, in previous episodes, the potential uh, transgenerational effects of stress and how it might be passed on. We talked, you know, I think most recently a little bit about this in uh, in the Black Panther episode, like thinking about the differences between uh, T'Challa and Killmonger and the biological differences therein. You know, so when we're thinking about you know generational trauma, you know, this brings up you know the question of exactly how this can affect individuals, not just themselves, but also potentially their children. And I think this is a really important, you know, medical question. It's a really important question, like when it comes to, uh, to public health for a lot of different groups of people. And so if we think about the history of colonialism, or if we think about World War II and its effects on Jewish and other, uh, and other European populations, if we think about the transatlantic slave trade or the Great Depression or the Irish potato famine, you know, or even epidemics like historical epidemics like the Black Plague or Ebola, all of these events in our history were extremely stressful times for the individuals that endured them. So not only is it possible that it affected how they cope later in their own lives, but also potentially, you know, how their children or maybe their grandchildren 
coped. So it's interesting to think that like a single stressful event can have these cascading effects through populations through time. So let's hear a little bit more from Michelle about the potential transgenerational, multi-generational effects of these sorts of stress and its effects on aspects of behavior. The Hulk in some, uh, in some story arcs, you know, he goes on to have kids and some of those kids go on to have kids and they're all, all hulky. Right. Really? I Does, didn't know there were yeah. stories on this. Yeah, the whole Hulk lineages. Some of some of those lineages are super messed up for a bunch of different reasons that we're not going to get into here. <laughs> um, but when we're thinking about sort of the passing on of stress responses like mm-hmm. across generations, mm-hmm. right? I mean, is this possible? Is it genetic? Is it hormonal? Is it something else? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and there are a lot of people trying to figure that out right now. Um, there's certainly evidence for what we would call transgenerational inheritance of trauma, right? We've seen that in a number of, of situations or a number of examples. Um, the sort of classic one is the uh, Dutch hunger winter uh, story where uh, during World War II, the Netherlands, part of the Netherlands was cut off from their food supplies by the Nazis and they underwent a very short and very intense famine. Uh, and researchers have been following babies or individuals who were in utero at that time and following them and their offspring uh, and generations forward and, and establishing effects of that early life stress in effect, mm-hmm. right, of being growth restricted, nutrient restricted in utero over multiple generations. The question is, how is that happening, mm-hmm. right? What's the mechanism? So and there are effects. Yeah, there seem to be effects. Okay. Yeah, depending on the study that you look at. The question is how, right? And there's a lot of interest in the field of epigenetics in looking at this and looking at transmission of these stable markers that regulate basically the turning on or the turning off of genes involved in in stress responses. Uh, But there's also some evidence that a lot of these effects might also be due to behavior, right? Transmission of behavior. If you have someone who experienced early life trauma, right, that could affect their behavior in ways that mean that in ways that alter their own behavior as a parent, right? And that could get passed on to their children and and so forth. So So that's not inheritance in the traditional sense, but more of like a cultural inheritance. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And that certainly happens as well. I think that's pretty well established. So. So when we typically, when we think about you know, like stress and behavior and behavioral responses and all this sort of stuff. I feel like a lot of times the conversation very quickly devolves into this like nature versus nurture. Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems like the reality is like some intricate mix of those two things. Yeah, it's always gonna be both and it's always gonna be really hard to disentangle them, right? There are certainly um, some genetic correlates of stress responsiveness, personality, et cetera. But um, early experience we see more and more is, is more and more important to pay attention to and also something that is obviously modifiable. Right? Okay. So I don't know if you're familiar with um, uh, the ACEs studies, uh, which are 
think it's shoot, I don't remember the name. There, accumulated childhood experiences. I think it's okay. a it's a um, a study that's been around for quite a while, but seeks to quantify early life traumatic experiences in children, and has found correlations between the number of negative experiences that that children have experienced um, early on and health outcomes in adulthood. And so it's a really big kind of public health push to identify ACEs early on and make interventions to try to help these kids and eventually adults. So if we're thinking about this character, it seems like a large proportion of like what makes the Hulk, the Hulk biologically speaking, Mm -hmm. has to do with early life trauma. Yeah, it sounds like it. it's too bad. He should really get checked out for high blood pressure. So one of the things Michelle mentioned is this ACEs study. And we're going to come back to this uh, a little bit later as well. Uh, but I want to give you a little bit of background on, you know, on this study because it's a pretty hallmark study in our understanding of, you know, the effects of, of stress on, you know, human behavior and also health outcomes. Yeah, so this, the ACEs study, uh, so this is um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACE. Uh, and this took place between uh, 1995 and 1997. And it's a hallmark study in the fact that it really sort of integrates this whole life perspective on stress. It takes this whole life perspective um, in approaching the roles of, of stress in shaping health outcomes. Uh, in the sense that it looks at the cascading effects of stress as a pyramid. All right, so at the bottom of that pyramid, you have the stresses themselves, right? So physical and sexual, emotional abuse and neglect and environmental stress, being in a, you know environment with, uh, with mental illness or parental separation or incarceration, like all these different aspects of stressful environments. And then the adverse childhood experiences that come along with that and how it affects outcomes later in life. So, you know, the effects of the stresses on childhood experience and then the social, emotional and cognitive impairment that can come about from those childhood experiences. Yeah. And then how those impairments can then lead to the adoption of health risk behaviors, right? things like, you know, addiction and abusive relationships later on in one's life and then how those behaviors then can cascade into disease and disability and social problems and then ultimately potentially early death you know so this is a pretty hallmark study in our understanding of like how stress affects our everyday lives so the interesting thing that comes up to me when i hear about the aces study is what can these communities do to prepare themselves for the challenges ahead and to prevent some of these adverse implications from occurring and you know when i think about mentorship programs or skill set development for families and children or even just community after school activities i i think all of these go and serve a long way to help strengthen the community and and kind of prevent and and combat some of these adverse effects that uh, communities that are susceptible to ACEs may likely face. And one of the things that's noticeable in those types of environments is that there is sort of this underpinning sense in, in, of frustration and, and the sense of anger. And when we talk about these communities that 
aren't taught how to properly express that or to, to emote that, it, it could be a bit of a, a tricky situation because anger is, is something that needs letting out. It's, it's useful, it can get things done, and it's something that we shouldn't be ashamed of. And when you kind of draw the parallels to Bruce Banner and the Hulk, the Hulk is clearly a manifestation of, of some of this anger and frustration. But when you look at communities of color and communities that are disenfranchised, they maybe don't necessarily have the permission to express or, or voice some of that frustration and anger. And in some instances, you know, metaphorically, very much like the Hulk, it could be viewed as something that is dangerous mm. when brought to light. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that the Hulk, at least for me, sort of really, really brings to the surface is the fact that I think it's it's really easy as, you know, especially as a scientist to think about the biology of this character in a vacuum. But one of the important things that, you know, I think we're coming to, to realize like over the last couple of decades is that biology only really makes sense in its socio-political context, right? I mean, that is a really important part of the environment, right? And that's an aspect of the environment that can't be replicated with a lot of model systems, right? Like how do you replicate that sort of thing with with a mouse or with, you know, with any other sort of mechanistic system to try to understand the biology? So studies like this ACES study, I think one of the biggest things that they add to both our biological and social understanding is where these two things inter interact and intersect. So another aspect of this character I really wanted to um, explore with Michelle is actually um, Bruce's cousin, uh, Jennifer Walters, you know, who has her own version of the Hulk, the She-Hulk. Um, you know, but this character is, you know, although she's also a Hulk, she presents very differently. Tell, can you tell us a little bit more about, about She-Hulk, Arian? Sure. So she actually came to the scene in the 80s. Uh, again, Stanley was the creator of that character. Uh, and she actually had a blood transfusion from her cousin, Bruce Banner. So that's how she uh, came into contact with the gamma-radiated blood and became the character that she did. And although she becomes a large and powerful kind of green-hued version of herself, uh, she still maintains her personality, she still retains her intelligence and EQ, and she'll become stronger if enraged, but there's a sense of control that Jen has that you don't see Bruce Banner and the Hulk demonstrate. And so there's a, kind of an interesting, I guess, new interpretation of what it means to Hulk out and how you can potentially control that uh, as a gamma-infected person. And so I, I suppose the question we're kind of leaning into is, is there maybe a, a gender difference there as well? Yeah, so when, you know, obviously, you know, when we talk about gender and sex, this is a very complicated issue, you know, and it's a complicated issue um, societally, but also biologically, you know, and, yeah, so one of the questions that I had uh, for Michelle is, what do we know about potential 
sex differences, you know, in terms of our stress responses. Do the sexes actually respond differently or is this some sort of a cultural trope that has infused both our colloquial understanding of personality, but also potentially like has it infused our understanding, our biological understanding of stress and stress response. So let's hear what she has to say about this. This brings us to Jennifer Walters. Mm -hmm. Which is who is the cousin of Bruce Banner. Mm -hmm. She's also known as She-Hulk. Right. Now, when we consider how her Hulk condition presents, we'll say, <laughs> um, it presents in a very different way than her cousin. Um, and she seems to have a lot more control over her powers than he does. Mm -hmm. Right now, she does Hulk out from time to time, but it's not nearly to the extreme as Bruce. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do men and women actually respond to stress differently, or is this a bullcrap product of the comic book patriarchy? <laughs> probably a little bit of both, but probably mostly the latter, <laughs> okay. in my opinion. Okay. Um, uh, I, yeah, that seems more like a stereotype to me okay. uh, of women being you know, more in control um, or less aggressive in mm -hmm. some way. Uh, when you look at whether you know men and women respond to stress differently, that's a tough question to answer um, okay. because some studies find that they do and some studies find that they don't and it really varies depending on you know what kind of stressful experience are they asking their participants to undergo right mm -hmm. uh, the kind of standard, stressor for, for your studies of human um, stress responses is something called the Trier Social Stress Test. Uh, it sounds pretty stressful to me, but you go to a room, right? You are presented with a panel of people you don't know who are all wearing kind of formal uh, business attire or lab coats or something like that and you're told that you are interviewing for some position and you need to on the spot uh, describe your qualifications for whatever this position is I'm already sweating Just yeah. well it's not over yet because as soon as you finish doing that you get to do some sort of math problem where you start at say 277 and you count back by seven, oh, right? Dear. And if you mess up, you got to start over and you have to do it as fast as you want. So it turns out that what we call a standard stressor, right? You want to use the same sort of stressful experience for any population that you're looking at, right? That does a really good job of increasing levels of cortisol right um, in participants people get stressed out and so it's been used for a really long time to do any number of studies on stress including those studies that look at sex differences now in those sorts of studies again the evidence is kind of equivocal um, but the tendency is actually to see that men respond with a greater increase in cortisol to that kind of stressor oh, okay. than women okay however that's one kind of stressor, right? And there are lots of other stressful experiences, right? Um, so it's, that it's can an be oversimplification. Used. It's a big oversimplification. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And even within that that kind of stressor, the data aren't I don't think are, you know, hundred percent towards men having stronger stress responses okay. than women. Well, maybe it skews a little bit. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. Which is actually the opposite of the trends we see in rodents. 
oh. females seem to have higher stress responses than than males okay. in rodents. Interesting. So it's confusing. It sounds confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Michelle's answer here actually, I think, highlights one of the biggest issues in biology, like when it comes to bias. So how do you go about formulating a test to get an unbiased view of some aspect of performance? Right, so you know, when we're thinking about stress in this case, we know that we as researchers, as individuals, as humans, we all have our own biases. And how do we keep those biases in check when we're trying to get unbiased answers about the way life works when it comes to anything, right? So for instance, we know that the STEM fields are incredibly male bias. So how do we keep that male bias from affecting how we put together tests in such a way that it, it would bias our results due to our preconceived notions of differences between the sexes or differences between genders yeah and the same is true so generally speaking as humans right we have human bias so when we're asking questions that we think are really important to us especially like when it comes to things like iq intelligence creativity and we're trying to understand sort of how these things evolve this these are typically comparative studies that are done across many species but how do we remove our human bias from these questions you know we have a tendency to put together questions that we think we would do well at because we have a, a tendency to think of ourselves as like the epitome of intelligence but i mean as the saying goes like you know if you judge a fish by its ability to fly or a bird that's not a penguin on its ability to swim you know you don't get a great answer but that also doesn't tell you much about the biology of, you know, of the organism under study, you know, so, you know, this idea that, you know, there may be inherent differences between the sexes and our ability to, to respond to stress or like how we go about, um, you know, expressing ourselves as a result of stress. I mean, it's a really complicated and sort of muddled field right now. I, I mean, I think in large part because we're still trying to understand how we re remove our own, uh, our own biases from that equation. I really hope you enjoyed part one of our exploration of the biology of the Incredible Hulk. We'll be back later this month with part two when we continue our journey to understand the big green mean machine through the lens of psychology. I sit down with clinical psychologist Dr. Andrea Letamendi and we chat about the different ways we cope with stress as individuals and what happens when two distinct personalities occupy the same mind. Until then, for those of us who may be having trouble dealing with stress, please reach out for help because none of us can do it on our own and there are community resources like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which can be reached at 1-800-273-8255 or suicidepreventionlifeline.org. So with that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious.